0: I'm seeing Blue Jays scrums. Baseball really is about to be here. I've got Arden's Welling in the coming studio next week. I'm excited to talk to him before he heads to Florida, but yeah, a bunch of people are already down there. Yeah, I'm going to talk about Siakam in a second. Got a little bit of, got a few thoughts on Morgan Riley and yesterday, why we didn't hear from Brad Trier Living, but i seeing quotes from John Schneider today about how there's more urgency this year for the Blue Jays. That's good. That's good. There's more urgency. So they added that in the offseason at least. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a total miss. It wasn't just Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. It wasn't just Justin Turner. They also added urgency, which you love to hear. It's. It's very, very nice. Very nice that they added some urgency. All right, Blue Jays down. They're at spring training. Siakam night last night. God, I'm losing my voice. I'm sick. I thought that we were gonna. Uh, I, I thought that we were gonna. out of this pandemic with hey everybody stays home when they're sick there's no more work shaming of going into work sick that we're going to get through it and and that would be one of the end results i was basically over a million when it came to what we were going to do post pandemic better world more hospitals people staying home on their sick days using their actual sick days workplaces not pressuring you to work during sick days all those over a million I, i didn't get any of those things right now i'm trying to scratch out a bunch of words on the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, but yeah, no, I actually did think there's a couple interesting things that I saw this morning. One is the urgency, which I think is hilarious. That's just classic spring training stuff, right? Like, yeah, okay. Some guys are going to be there, and they're going to be in the best shape of their lives. And they're going to be more urgent. That's the thing that you're really going to feel about the Toronto Blue Jays this year is whatever, whatever that means. Like, I, w- When you're struggling, it, it usually gets told to us that it's because you're gripping the sticks too tight. You're holding the bat too tight. You, you're too nervous. You're doing things differently. But I guess urgency in baseball is good now. So we'll see how that works. Uh, I, I'm, a little, I'm a little suspect. Uh, I'll turn around on this and I'll get a little bit more optimistic about the Blue Jays because it is spring and nobody wants to hear a guy just crap on the team. Uh, I, I know that's how I feel when I'm with my friends and they start crapping on the team. I kind of tune out and I go, yeah, yeah. Because I'm going to go to these games, I'm still going to be there, and I'm going to end up enjoying it. And I'm actually very stoked about the cup holders and the 100 section. That's where I'm at. That was the big off-season addition for me. Is oh, nice. Can put my beer anywhere uh, in the in the seats that are actually going to be facing home plate. But yeah. Uh, I'm not going to be all over a lot of the optimism quotes. That being said, the, the actual interesting stuff is surrounding Manoa. Uh, they're talking about how he's going to, he's competing for a job and that he knows he's competing for a job. And I'm a little suspicious as to the degree of this, like how much of a lead that he's actually getting, because he should get quite a bit of a lead, but that's going to be the story to monitor in spring right that's the one that we're all going to care about because let's be real here the spring training stories that we usually manufacture and I don't just mean media people I mean fans as well because you want to talk about the team you want to discuss what's going on this year a lot of them turn out to be not such a big deal and and how should you remember this well Otto Lopez who was the darling of spring a year ago the guy who represented team Canada and Swinging a hot bat and was one of the prospects that was actually taking a step and looked like someone that could actually provide the Blue Jays with some depth. Yeah, he's gone. He's just they let him go for a little bit, a little bit of cash just a year later. Usually this stuff doesn't really matter. The fringy guys on the roster. It's nice to be able to get a look and actually see what an Addison Barger looks like. Right. Some of the guys that you're hoping could impact a roster. But usually those conversations all go to pot. Alec Manoa is not that like this is somebody who could either end up being the ace of the staff this year. If things go properly, a guy who completely changes the ceiling of the season, or we end up seeing him in spring and he looks like the exact same guy as last year who can't control the strike zone, who struggles with the pitch clock, who doesn't look to be in better mental or physical shape. And boom, you're starting the season way, 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 way behind the eight ball, losing someone who could end up being, you know, a Cy Young nominee this year. Someone who, by the way, I also think has a really, as far as baseball goes, right, but a a big uh, impact on the team's personality, the way that they're going to carry themselves. I mentioned this before, uh, always will. Having the big vocal guy in the squad that sticks up for everybody and carries himself with a ton of swagger in any walk of life, I think has a lot of practical application. Anyways uh siakam last night awesome tribute video really nice stuff by the crowd i couldn't figure out whether or not all the pascal jerseys were actually fans that wore pascal jerseys or there was some sort of a giveaway or there was the something going there was yeah a there was okay there was a giveaway so nick you were down there did you didn't get the jersey you didn't get the, the giveaway on time uh yeah you know how it goes sometimes uh yeah okay yeah I set yeah, it you up for like one time. i think the one section 119 or something like that okay that, that so said, that, though, uh, it was great. no that makes sense <laughs> that makes sense that makes sense that makes sense okay that makes sense i just there it, it seemed for one section to have all the jerseys like that and they were floating around on social media i went oh man this is a really intensely coordinated effort um i loved it i gotta be honest i, I think that there's probably in in the toronto raptors history now, two players that, upon their departure, the fan base appreciated a lot more. One is DeMar DeRozan, right? Because when Chris Bosh left, no one started getting weepy about Chris Bosh. No one started looking back on it and going, oh, i the Chris Bosh memories. Vince Carter, it took a long time to turn around. Tracy McGrady wasn't even... Tracy McGrady didn't even play here. Like, I, I whenever I see someone wearing a T-Mac jersey, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's for sure. But, uh, like, the star players... Guys of real impact and acclaim. And I'm not talking about upper echelon depth guys, too. Because, like, OG wasn't even on. Like, he didn't even play during the championship run. But there's two guys. Fred VanVleet, same thing. He left. He got the bag of money. The entire fan base understood it. I think the Raptors understood it. His I, Like, I was at his tribune night. That was very different from Siakam's. And I think rightfully so. But there's two guys that left that... We look at now and you would say, hmm, I actually really got a little bit more sympathetic, a little bit more sentimental about this guy now that he's actually gone. De DeRozan was one because he had to wear the brunt of you not only got traded, but you got traded helping build this thing up. And then we said you were the guy that couldn't get it done in the playoffs. Then they went out and got the ultimate guy who could get it done in the playoffs and it resulted in a championship. And and no one wanted to see that happen to DeMar DeRozan. And yeah, as as great as Kawhi Leonard was, the, the quickness in which he left the franchise and the, yeah, lack of sentimentality, I think made people a little bit more appreciative of just how much DeMar DeRozan cared about being a Toronto Raptor. And what he thought of this city and the fact that he basically went on a, two-year tour mourning not being a toronto raptor anymore siakam's the other one i think that my and this is just my read but my read of siakam was after the celtic series he never fully recovered optically he was one of the best stories in the nba and and i i think that he's one of the best stories in the nba ever like flat out one of the best stories in the nba ever Had no expectations, was the guy that was just the gravy on top, but then just was a victim of the circumstance of Kawhi Leonard leaving town and inheriting all the expectations of becoming the successor to Kawhi Leonard, the best player the Raptors have ever seen put on the jersey. He showed up that year and he was brilliant to start. And the Raptors fans and media large, they got this whole notion that Siakam could end up winning an MVP and that. Maybe the Raptors could still win a title if Siakam was uh, an elevated version of himself, and based on his trajectory, which again started from a guy who you didn't trust in the dunker spot, taking a uh, two-foot shot that was basically just a player that you wanted to have in transition that you could throw an outlet pass to, to guy who can take a pull-up three and who can make a jump shot, who can get who who had multiple spots on the floor, who had his, not only a spin move but who is now building you know an elbow jumper. Could start to hit a bit of a fadeaway. Ooh, maybe he's going to end up being a closer. All of a sudden, you could see a scoring package that resembled a little bit of early Kawhi. Plus, they had had Kawhi, who was a 15th overall pick, someone who developed from what? A defensive specialist, which is what Siakam was originally supposed to be. I remember when Jerry Stackhouse was the coach of the 905, and I had him on, and he said Siakam was the team's best defender before he was even on the Toronto Raptors. So Siakam inherits all of this weight, it goes from everything you did as gravy, man. We can't believe this story. This is unbelievable. This is incredible. They can't believe the Raptors drafted a completely unknown guy, 27th. And he turned out to be someone who could score 30 in a finals game. Someone who was closing out the finals with a floater to, Oh my God, you better be Kawhi. And that weight, Never left. And it especially especially hit him in the Celtics series because none of us had had sports for a long time. We all tuned back in. We were all excited for Toronto Raptors basketball. They were the team of that year. Everybody loved that Raptors team. And Siakam couldn't score on anybody. He couldn't dribble the basketball. He was getting absolutely cooked by Marcus Smart. There wasn't a defender that the Celtics could throw at him that Siakam could do anything on. And it evaporated. He came into the next year and... It's a season. That's a COVID year. It's a throwaway year. All that happens. And then boom, all of a sudden, Scotty Barnes arrives and the Raptors have a lottery pick and, and fans are essentially ready to move on. The Siakam era has closed. He gets a bit of an opportunity to be the one a score on a team, but it just, we get, we get trapped in the two timeline conversation. And then mess Ujiri makes the mistake of not picking the direction early enough, trying to roll it year over year, fans become frustrated and Siakam becomes the face of, Oh, you absolutely need to trade this guy. You've got to figure out a trade for this guy. And so it basically ends up being a two year discussion from people like me of what are you going to get for Siakam? When are you going to trade Siakam? When are you going to pick a direction on Siakam? And all the while, we're not really appreciating the way that this guy plays and what he's done. And, how good he can be and what he might be on a championship contender. It's just all about trade packages. And fair enough. Like, that's what we do. That's what fans do. This is not fan shaming. I'm just explaining that last night I think was a little cathartic for Raptors fans watching him, seeing him return and having the tributes. Beautiful video by Grange. Great job by Siakam with his camp, with the stuff that they released, some great articles that were written about Siakam. I enjoyed reading them all. But it was nice to see the love that the city gave him. And it was nice to watch him... Succeed last night after a really nervous start. He, he looked, he looked really emotional. He couldn't get anything going. He was trying to, he looked like actually early Siakam where he was just driving to the basket and doing his, ah, as he throws a layup attempt up that misses wildly. And then the other team breaks out in transition because he's got all his momentum falling out forward. Uh, but yeah, it was just nice. It was nice to see that Siakam not only got that love, but that he's just, he's always going to be the city's guy is this this will always be home for pascal siakam yeah no matter what happens it's gonna be toronto it's not gonna be indiana it's not gonna be anywhere else that he ends up landing but yeah i was thrilled to see the tribute i was thrilled to see him perform well and the only thing that sucks is i i'm rooting for the raptors to win okay i'm not on team tank i I keep getting messages from people going good good for the tank good for the tank i still think people are confused by this um the, the raptors they own. Well, I'm, I'm not going to go through the stipulations of what they have in this, this draft, but this draft is not a good draft. Okay. This is full of wild cards. And if they keep their pick, fine, whatever. I'm going to have, I'm going to start to have people on to discuss this draft and actually give a, a reasonable opinion on who might an, actually end up being out here. And of course, you want more lottery tickets and the Raptors end up with their pick, fine, whatever. It's not the biggest of deals. But if you're the Raptors and you look like this, I would think you want to have control of your pick and just have this trade over and done with and not have to worry about what the Spurs what you owe the Spurs next year. Like anybody who has any type of debt should know this. Just get rid of the debt. Pay off the debt. Pay pay it off. Get get rid of it. Pay it off now so that you can just focus on the future and not have that on your shoulders. And for the Toronto Raptors I just feel like that that has to be that has to be it. Then if you are in a situation like you're in this year where the team is not coalescing and you're not finding another step and you do think that you might have to end up tanking in 2025 where there's a couple of guys at the very top who are intriguing, cool, then you can start to move off of pieces. You can start to make trades like the Dennis Schroeder move where you trade him for nothing and fans aren't going to have any pushback. But not only did the Raptors lose this game, they lost to a team who they own the pick of. They lost to the Pacers. They had an opportunity. The Pacers not been winning a lot of games that I got Vivek Jacob on later on the show. He wrote an article like since getting Siakam Pacers are six and eight. They've not been incredible. So you'd like to at least be able to have their pick be a bit worse. Raptors were in that game the entire way. And so, yeah, they're closer to the lottery. They're closer to keeping their pick. Meanwhile, the Pacers pick gets a little bit better and that's all the while where they don't have miles Turner. They lose Neesmith Smith in the middle of the game. Didn't really see an update on that. It looked like a scary fall. It looked like a lot of pressure on the, the front of his foot and the way that he turned his ankle. It's not one that like, you're, you're not used to seeing an ankle roll quite like that. Um, they can't play. like they, they, They're not fielding a full roster right now, but they, they can't play Halliburton a ton of minutes because he's still dealing with an injury. Like I couldn't believe I, if I was a Pacers fan, i had been going nuts because they're playing TJ McConnell. <laughs> like six minutes into the fourth quarter, and he's just a nightmare missing bunnies and can't get absolutely anything done for them in a positive way. But they they got to they gotta manage the minutes. They got to manage the workloads. The Akram's in foul trouble, and still the Raptors just couldn't pull it out. I will say that I, I guess when you're in a rebuild, you got to do moral victories, but really good moral victory for the Raptors when it came to Scotty Barnes last night. Like, he gets the all-star tribute. Siakam's in town. You're a Raptors fan after what you saw and the discourse over the 48 hours leading into that game. Pretty important for Scottie Barnes to show up and have an awesome game. And he did. He was just a force the entire game long. He looked like the best guy on either team. He looked like the guy that you would want out of everybody, out of Halliburton, out uh, out of Siakam, out of Barnes. It was him. He was the guy. I don't really mind that he didn't get the final play call drawn up for him because... RJ was cooking too. He got the matchup. It's RJ Barrett. He's a scorer. I don't, he gets an isolation play like that and a a good look at the basket. I'm not going to hate it. It was good defense by the Pacers, worse offense, whatever. But for Barnes to come out and just dominate that way and play that physical tip to tail was awesome. Like a truly, truly awesome performance for Scotty Barnes. So credit to him. Awesome response. Um, I'm excited to see now if he can carry it over into the next game after the all-star break. And what he ends up doing at the All Star break, I think I'm going to care about that too. Anyways, more Raptors stuff later with Vivek Jacob. Uh, I am going to get into some of the Morgan Riley stuff and as to why I don't think Brad True Living spoke yesterday and what I think is going to plan out or play out here with Morgan Riley. But I, the goalies, the goalies are getting the goalie talk is going to get hot on this show. The goalie talk is going to heat up pretty soon here because you got Ilya Samsonov playing really well and Joe Wool getting closer and closer, and it's going to be Dennis Hildeby that backs him up again tonight. Uh, They still have old Marty Jones out with another injury. Undisclosed, 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 undisclosed. But when he comes back, when Joe Wool comes back, it's going to be super interesting what ends up happening with the net, whether or not Samsonov is able to continue his momentum moving forward here, whether he feels like a guy who has the net on any given night, because that's the thing. He's getting a lot of ice. And he's done well with that in the past. What happens when Joel Wohl comes back and they need to play him more? What happens when those practices get split? What happens if Samsonov has one bad game? Anyways, I I think it's really going to be curious which of these two goaltenders shows the higher ceiling for the Toronto Maple Leafs this year. Because, yeah, I don't think it's a certainty that it's actually Joel Wohl, the way that we basically outlined it would be a month into the season. Anyways, I had a chance to chat with Kelly Rudy of Hockey Night in Canada about it. Here it is. Hey, thanks so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it, especially on Valentine's Day.
1: I know, I know you're a people. I was wondering All if right? you were going to bring that up. Yeah, it's no, uh, it's a I great see. day. My wife yeah. and I have a have planned a uh, dinner at the house. So I have kind of a funny story. At least it's funny to yeah. me. So I go to our uh, local grocery store. They have a beautiful butcher shop. And my wife said to me yesterday, why don't we do steaks tomorrow night? So, of course, Valentine's Day tonight. And so I go to the butcher shop. And my wife says, ask them what's a good steak pan sear because we're not going to do it on the barbecue grill of course and so Mm -hmm. i mentioned that to him and my butcher goes i don't know i'm not a chef
0: so that wasn't the best start to valentine's day (laughs) (laughs) i i i would have that i hate the butcher for saying that to you that's like uh that's that's in your wheelhouse sir like that's gotta be something shouldn't he know Yeah. Give me at least a clue. I'm not a chef. So you're telling me that you're back there and you're, you're deciding all the cuts, but you don't know. That's, but that's what I mean. I thought there was a a real element to the way the cuts get applied into how you should cook them. I'm not a chef either. So I'm the worst because I would have been completely emasculated because I, I wouldn't have known where to go from there. You know, I think honestly, if this, this is me, I, I think I would have paid for something overly expensive and then walked out of there and prayed it was the right thing. I, I wish I could say I could handle it differently, but I really think that's the way I would have done it.
1: Well, I think this is a good thing for me. I've now just turned 63 and I don't uh, really like conflict anymore. Years ago, I would have loved conflict, but yeah. not anymore at my age. And so I pretty much did the same thing. I bought an expensive steak. All two of them, and then I walked out without <laughs> saying
0: anything. And the, Okay, this is the real test, though, is do you think that when you bring them home and you do this that your wife will know? Like, are you going to share with her that he didn't know, or are you going to go into this with unbridled confidence telling her these are the best for being pan-seared out of all of the cuts?
1: Oh, gosh, no. I'm going to tell her the story because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we go to this place on a fairly regular basis, yeah. and the guy is normally... A little bit grumpy, but not this grumpy. So she'll know exactly who I'm talking about.
0: (laughs) I love that you have a grumpy butcher. Also, listen, uh, I've got I've had the pleasure of meeting you a few times. You're an agreeable, nice person. Like some people have a warm face where it's just, you know, right away that the interaction is going to be pleasant and you have a face like that. So I just I, I find it. Especially great that this butcher steamrolls through that and is like, I don't care who you are. I don't care about your presentation or your demeanor. I'm still going to be a jerk to you. I actually kind of respect it. I kind of respect it. Anyways, it is Kelly Rudy, the great Kelly Rudy. Uh, So many things I want to talk to you about today. But let's start with this. You've always been this great advocate for mental health. And the goaltending position is one where, uh, of course, right? Of course, you you played this position and of course you understand the, the wear and tear that can go through your head psychologically as you deal with the ups and downs of a position. But can you remember a guy like Ilya Samsonov, who genuinely has gone from look like he was a star in the league, top tens in basically every single metric last season, helped carry a team like the Toronto Maple Leafs, where everybody is watching your every move with like, you know, the most in the the most serious of intent the most focused of intent uh plays brilliantly at home last year awesome all the way around with the pressures of a contract comes into this year completely loses it to the point where we all think that he's going to be out of the league that he might be heading back to russia to all of a sudden he bounced back and he looks exactly like the guy from last year in such a short oh yeah there are many
1: examples over the years and you're talking to a guy that lived it jd so Mm -hmm. Uh, the year that the L.A. Kings went to the final in 92-93, I was the starting goalie, and I had the best start uh, of my pro career, and I, that was my 10th year, um, until around the beginning of December. And then I went in a ditch, and I was in a ditch for two months, and if not for the uh, help of Barry Melrose, uh, lining me up with uh, Anthony Robbins, or I guess better known as Tony Robbins, and I had a number of one-on-one sessions with Tony To get me out of that dark place and uh, we ultimately as I mentioned went to the final so this is not unique Um, I think we're recognizing it more we're talking more about it Um, and we're seeing with uh, the support and love that people feel now uh, sharing their story and Patrick Binary is a great example of how um, we need to uh, show uh, tons of support for everybody because it's it's around us all around us, and we all go through things, and so, yeah, Samsonov was a, i think the case study and how to deal with it for NHL teams and Brad Tree living in the organization did an amazing job to send him down, but not to play, just to work with the goalie coach, get his head in the right place, start to believe in himself, and I truly believe, and I know Kevin Diex said this on the air i wasn 't on the show that night, but it would have been a failed experiment to play him in the AHL. He needs to play against NHL players with NHL defensemen in front of him. And, and with all due respect to the guys in the AHL, they're still trying to find their way, and they would make mistakes that he'd be unfamiliar with and be cause more harm playing goal in front of those or behind those guys. So, really wise move by Brad. And look at the uh, benefits. He's, he's looking a lot more like himself.
0: You know, that, that's why, again, it's so important to be able to kind of share the lived experience of this. Because, yeah, I think for a lot of us on the outside, the the thought was, wow, if he's not ready to play even at the AHL, if they're not even prepared to put him in that spot, then it's it's got to be a complete write-off. You know, if, if he can't handle an AHL game where there's low stakes, then what does that say about where he's at? And, and you know, Luke Fox spoke with me about a... He didn't get the Tony Robbins treatment. He got his father coming from yeah. Russia and apparently delivering him uh, a very uh, intense but heartfelt message at the dinner table. And and that yeah. seems to have helped him get out of this rut. But yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't want to say that it's unprecedented. I just currently, I couldn't remember a guy where it went from that high to that low and back up to just completely normal that quickly. I, I It yeah. really does speak to, like, I'll, let me actually ask you this. Do you think it was all mental with him? Like when you watch his game right now and the way that he's playing, is there something about it where you say, oh, "Okay, this is good Samsonov," like something with his feet, something with his positioning that like a lot of people like to say calm in the net. He does appear to be more of that lately, but how much is it all just kind of tied into the mentals to you versus maybe a tweak that he's actually made in his game getting back to something?
1: Well, it's all tied together, but the fact is, it's it's more about what's going on in the head and how you're dealing with that and the stress. And the you know that you're the weak link, and that's also a terrible place to be. And, and he led us into his mind in late October, right? I remember my wife and I were driving from Calgary to Edmonton for the outdoor game between the Oilers and the Flames, and that was the day he talked to the press about what he was going through, which, by the way... I thought at that time that was going to be a helpful first step because now he's sharing. But unfortunately for him, it just became a deeper and deeper hole because mm-hmm. it's one thing to work on your mental, um, you know, the, the the part that part of it, but you need positive results on on the ice, and if you're not getting them then it's going to make it worse in your head and what you're thinking about yourself and where your career may be going and all these negative thoughts that, uh, you know, try and ruin you.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I I think, I think it was great that he ended up actually opening up and sharing. I know that some people thought, Hey, this is actually too much of a window into what's going on, but I, I really did think it was great. And if you looked at the way that the city responded with the way people rooted for him, uh, I thought it I, I think it was ended up being kind of part of the turnaround that he was so vulnerable it's interesting, you know, I actually watched a Tony Robbins clip today yeah. uh it's yeah. uh, did he ever use the one on you of look around the room and look for brown, then close your eyes and think about what's brown, then look around the room for red i didn't he didn't use that one. We did okay. uh, other
1: drills where uh, we just talked about me, who I am, what do I think about myself. Uh, all these things about turning that negative uh, thought that I had in my head to positive thoughts, but, it, but it's not phony crap. It's you got to put yeah. in the work. Like, it's a lot of work to confront who you are and what you're going through and where you are uh, mentally. And by the way, the coolest thing about this, J.D., Barry Melrose, my coach, he, of course, as I mentioned, made the introduction, but he asked if he could sit in on the session, which I thought was really cool because I'm the starting goaltender on maybe the most popular team in the National Hockey League because of Gretzky. And he wanted to know where I was mentally. So I allowed Barry to stay in on the session, which is very, very revealing. And uh, talk about putting yourself out on the line because, you know, some coaches at that point might have said, oh, my gosh, we've got to get rid of Kelly. He's a lost cause. And they didn't. And uh, the team put in the work with me and they stuck with me and I ended up playing another five years in the league, but not without Barry and Tony.
0: Well, I think that's especially special given, like that says a lot about your relationship with Barry Melrose, because yeah, yeah, it's one thing for him to want to be there, but it's another thing for you to be willing to let him be in the room. Yeah, but you know what? I was so down
1: on myself. I had no no other place to turn. Like, I I thought that my career was over. So what did I have to lose? Really, I, I didn't have anything to lose. I was the worst goalie in the league at that point, and I went from maybe one of the best in uh, the, from the start of the season to mid December. And so I knew that my career was on the line. So did I ha- really have anything to lose to be really open and and uh, honest I I don't think so
0: Mm. yeah I still think yeah it takes uh, like uh, you might not have something to lose still takes some level of trust to open up about those things in front of someone that you don't right like I think that anybody who's actually gone through anything like that like I've I've gone to therapy before and even when you're first getting to know a therapist it's hard to be honest you know, like you're you're looking at this person, and going, I, I don't know you. I I know this is your job, but I uh, let me give you partial truths, and then as you start to work your way into it, it maybe and maybe that's just me, but I think that is probably a lot of people it takes you a little bit more time I, I to can
1: understand to, that.
0: Yeah, I experienced to t-
1: going to see the person helping me with my mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I was scared stiff driving there. And then I got into the office, and I cried for an hour. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) See, the first time I did it, I did all my crying after. I didn't cry during. It was (laughs) after. I wept. No, I went, it was, you know, what I learned is you don't go for a beer with your friends immediately after your very first therapy session oh, no! because no, no, no. all you want to, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I went out with friends. I went to go meet some of the guys and obviously you're still kind of in that space, right? Where you, you want to explore deeper thoughts and deeper things. And I hadn't shut that tap off. And then, yeah. yeah, I had to go to the bathroom and cry. Uh, I was like sitting in there being like, oh, God damn it. I got to I gotta turn this off. I got to make this normal. Otherwise, people are going to think that, yeah, I'm losing it. Uh, okay, so the, the, the kid's coming back to the Maple Leafs, Joe Wall. And at, I kind of like the circumstances that he's returning to where it's not all on his shoulders all of a sudden as a guy who has, I think, only something like, Uh, I want to say 30 starts ever as a pro during one season, including the AHL. So it's nice that he can come back and sort of split the net. But if you were going to be trying to give him some advice as he comes back or say that there's something that you're hoping to see from him, what would it be?
1: Well, he's already said what the biggest step for his, for him coming up for his development. And that is uh, reading the play. Uh, I recall when he first got called up. uh, Well, what was that? Two seasons ago. (laughs) And he said, so he revealed something about well, what I'm really trying to learn is how to read a play because I think he understood he has all the physical talents, but to play goal, if you can't read a play, you won't have a long career because you just can't react to every situation. You have to understand when you're sitting back there and you see the attack coming your way or whether it's on the power play or whatever, and you have to be able to, identify the puck carrier and his, depending on his talent level. So you have to know everybody in the league, uh, depending on that guy's talent level with the puck, what his two or three options might be. Now there might be a player like Sidney Crosby or McDavid that has four options, right? Cause they see everybody on the ice, but typically most players have one or two options. And so you have to identify those quickly so that you're in proper position to make the save and that not be chasing the play. So that he understands that. It just takes time to learn that. It's not easy to understand how to do that.
0: Based on what you've seen from both guys at their very best, Wool and Samsonov, who do you think has the higher ceiling of the two?
1: Holy cow, that's a tough one because experience is a important part of this equation. I would say right now, Samsonov, but that's not to discredit or be dismissive to Walls because that's unfair because certain people develop at different stages and you know different ages in life. So, you know, Jacob Markson is a great example. So he was a high draft choice and he didn't have very much success young. He didn't really start to take off till he was 27 or 28. And I remember when he was about 27 with Vancouver, I said, okay, he is for sure an NHL player, NHL goalie, but I don't know if he's ever going to be a number one. Well, the next season his game took off to a different level, and he's been at that level ever since. Uh, he's, he's a bona fide number one, one of the best goalies in the league. So that's why that's a difficult question because age is a big part of this. Of course,
0: yeah, and you're, you're allowed to exceed expectation, and I think it's reasonable to think that the guy who's actually done it, and who has the pedigree of Samsonov, could be the higher guy. I just think that for a little while, and the reason why I'm asking you is that, you know, you actually have a more educated eye looking at it, you do have this experience, because for a lot of us, I think there was, it, it did feel like a bit of a certainty, especially when Samsonov was in a lull, and as he's still building back, I think the trust of a lot of people in the fan base, that yeah, that wool would, with some kind of weird certainty, be the, the guy that the leafs were hoping emerged as the number one goaltender this year and and i'm not sure that's necessarily true um if they do keep three guys and i know martin jones is a is a veteran but it it doesn't feel like the leafs are going to want to end up trying to put him on waivers because someone could end up claiming him even though he is a guy who would understand his role do you think it's difficult for everyone involved if there's three goalies around
1: yes i do um Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to to manage everybody's uh, forget about game time, practice time. So mm. everybody loses when you have three goalies. Ideally, you have two, and everybody gets the the practice time that they need, because practice time is invaluable. It's it's one of the greatest things. That, you know, going back to our conversation about the highest uh, ceiling for Waller or Samson, one thing that there's no way to gauge. There's no way to look at it and calculate it is work ethic and so when you have three guys that want the net somebody's losing out or all three guys are losing out and and they can't perform at the level they need they can't put in the work that they need and then you're in a bad place
0: yeah um i i do wonder how it's going to play out but i i think that Yeah, that's probably, that probably feels very, very right with the way that they're going. Okay. So uh, I did also want to speak to you today because the Calgary Toronto connection and all of the stuff that is in the news about Calgary right now. um, Obviously, you do the regional broadcast. I was watching the game the other night. Um, The focus here seems to have shifted a little bit from uh, Tanev to Hannafin. But I do want to start with the Tanev thing for you. Is okay. And I I mean this in a complimentary way. Okay. I'm, I'm not trying to degrade Tanev when I bring this stuff up, but this is a guy who's 34 years old, has less career goals than his age, has a history of injuries and is a pending UFA, but the ask is a first and maybe even more. Can you kind of explain as someone who watches a lot of him, what it is Chris Tanev brings a hockey team and whether you think that that price for a team like the Leafs makes sense?
1: Well, a first rounder is a hardy ask. Mm -hmm. Having said that, Every playoff contender can use a guy like Chris have because he does everything right. And, you know, over the course of his career, I'm not as concerned about the injury component as some other people. You know, he puts himself in those positions where he's in high danger of blocking shots and getting injured. But he's so good at it that – and he's got a high pain threshold – I, I just think the world of the guy. Um, mm. So if I were a team that thought I have a chance of doing something in the playoffs, yeah, I, I have to go for that guy.
0: Mm. And in terms of Hannafin, feels like Calgary has made their offer, that they're waiting to see if he wants to be a flame. If they did entertain offers, like it's just a hypothetical. If they did entertain offers, do you see him as the kind of guy that Toronto should be really pushing hard to try to acquire? Because this is not a team with a ton of cap space. They're already built very top-heavy. They don't have a lot to pull from within the organization when it comes to a trade. Like they move for a guy like Hannafin. And and you're talking about essentially emptying the coverts. Do you see that as a fit given where Tree Living seems to be at, which is wanting to have term if he does bring somebody in or someone that can build around this core? Or is this one that you think Toronto should not be one of the main suitors in?
1: Well, it depends what you're looking for and how you value uh, Noah Hannaford. Mm -hmm. He is, uh, just personally, let's get this on the line, he's highly conflicted about whether leaving Calgary or not, because he loves it here so much. Um, He recognizes uh, how much he and his family enjoy Calgary, but, you know, going elsewhere is not uh, out of the equation as well. So he's got to balance all that, talk to his family, and I know he's done that. Now, having said that, what are you getting if you uh, trade for Noah Hannafin? Well, you get a really good defenseman with tons of experience that's playing perhaps the best he ever has and that's been going on for about 2 years but he's not a top pairing guy. He's a 3 or 4 and and he's brilliant at that. He's fantastic if you slot him as a 3 or 4 D on your team and you'll get full value. But if you pay for a top D then you're probably not getting value. But it it's very uh, you know hard to uh Figure out what
0: that price is. Yeah, um, I, I think that for Toronto, you you got to be looking for someone that can bump everyone else down a spot. And considering Morgan Riley is a left hand shot, I'm not sure that's the guy you should be targeting. I think the name sounds great. I think that the link between the two organizations. Sounds great, um, especially since, the you know, Tree Living had already called Calgary and there was discussions about his n and TANF package. But, yeah, I, I I think based on that scouting report, yeah, I it doesn't make it a seamless fit for a team like the Leafs who does feel like they have one move. And, okay, th- like that part of it, you're also a guy who really knows Brad Tree Living and you've watched him operate for years as a general manager. He is on record saying that you don't build teams at the trade deadline. I'm curious what you think he thinks when he's assessing this group right now.
1: Well, first of all, I'd agree with Brad that you can't build a team at a, at a trade deadline. You can add to a team, and that's it. And then that's always a crapshoot. But I don't know. That's Brad, as everybody knows, like all GMs, they make a million phone calls. And JD, I don't know if you, with your schedule, you can listen to Jeff Merrick, but I have always shared a story. I'm Jeff about Rogi Vasha, my general manager in Los Angeles. And we were talking, we had gotten to know each other quite well after two or three years. And uh, I said, How often do you talk to other general managers about some of us? He goes, Kelly, every single day I'm on the phone with every manager about every single one of you. So when you put that in perspective, uh, every single guy's being mentioned everybody's looked at for contracts everybody's looked at for term everybody's contracts is being uh considered about is this a good deal to keep them is it a good deal to get rid of them so everything's wide open i have no idea where that's going with any
0: of that Mm -hmm. that that said just knowing him when, when he first came to Toronto, everyone went, this isn't a Brad Tree living blue line. And the implication of that being that he has a real propensity to a big, heavy set of blue liners. Would you agree with that? I would, but, you know, you have to be able to skate as
1: well. Big big and heavy and defend well in your own team, pace guys to the boards in your own zone, break the cycle. But the number one thing, in my opinion, I can't, I'm not speaking for Brad, you have to make sure that if you get big guys that they're mobile. Mm-hmm. Mobile is the number one thing in today's NHL to me. Mm-hmm. And and all the young defensemen are proving that whether it's Gwyn Hughes or Kale McCar or Jack H- or uh uh his brother Luke Hughes, all the top young defensemen can move like they've never done before in the NHL's game.
0: Yeah. I actually think that we're going to start to maybe see a trend of even like more size up front, actually trying to counteract the, the size of the back end or the lack thereof, you know, like it's going to be more and more even an emphasis of bigger forwards that can take advantage physically of now lighter guys that yeah, uh, are going to be getting more minutes because yeah, some of the better guys in the NHL now are like, they, they are, they're getting smaller and smaller. And the, the point that you make is very, very real.
1: Yeah, but there's a danger if you go after guys in that vein and then they can't skate as well to keep up because a guy like Kale McCarr, now I know he's the benchmark, but he is so unique and skates so well and he knows his edges so well that if you attack at the wrong angle, you're in big, big trouble. And all these young defensemen play just like Kale, And so... And by the way, tail's mean as well in his own way, right so yeah. he's he's not a kind of guy that you can just push around and you know that he's going to cower and quit he's He's got his own edge,
0: yeah. No, he is absolutely, unequivocally a dog. And I love that he is paired with Nathan McKinnon and that the two of them, yeah, uh, yeah. counterbalance one another so well from a personality standpoint. Uh, anyways, uh, Kelly, I always appreciate getting to catch up with you. Always love the perspective. Um, and before you go, you want to tell me what the cut of the steaks are? And I'll Google them for you and tell you if they're, <laughs> if they're good to fancy.
1: <laughs> I, think, I think my wife has a uh, beef tenderloin and I have okay. a... A rib steak, I believe, I got
0: for myself. Okay, let's see. Well, let's. here's the thing. Uh, it only really matters today if it's the best possible for her. Uh, so let's see here. Oh, you know what? Like right there, tons of beef pet tenderloin uh sear recipes so you are you're good buddy nice. you're you're good and it actually right here key key according to google answers for a beef tenderloin is to sear it so uh stovetop beautifully yep everything looks good for you buddy you're in the clear today have a great valentines <laughs> day <right>. kelly <laughs>
1: thanks jd nice chatting with
0: you all right always love getting to chat with kelly rudy is a great guy great guy to chat with um I hope his Valentine's Day worked out well. I did, I didn't check in. I didn't check in to see how it actually worked out. Armin is our show chef. Kind of what? What'd you say? Rib all- steak, dude. <laughs> dude Rib steak on the pan fry is tough. That's a big steak, Ooh. you know. Let's we'll smoke up the whole house. Which but- one? But that one was for him, right? I think he did say that. Yeah, I think the strip loin was for his wife. If I heard yeah, correctly, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough break again i have i i didn't eat red meat for i want to say close to 12 years so i have no idea I, i'm a terrible 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 cook like yeah, i I did not know that about you yeah i yeah i i went I, I decided to go back on that i went i live in a city where i have some of the best restaurants in the world i'm i'm not limiting the palate anymore That's been gone for a few years now. But yeah, good luck to Kelly. Awesome guy. Anyway, I'll get into the Morgan Riley stuff on the other side of the break because I do have some thoughts on... We were all expecting Brad Tree Living to be speaking yesterday and then all of a sudden he didn't opt to do that. And Morgan Riley just appealed. And so I think quick explanation on why that happened after the break. Sportsnet 590 The Fan. So the game ends Tuesday night and Sheldon key fits the podium. And he says that we're going to hear from Toronto Maple Leafs GM, Brad Tree living on Wednesday afternoon. Okay, great. Not enough public appearances in my opinion from the Leafs front office. They're often far too quiet, especially in this market where if they did take to a podium, they could take a lot of heat off of the actual team, but yeah, Brandon Shanahan doesn't seem overly concerned about doing that uh, pretty much any given time. So they don't do it this time. So it feels a little frustrating. You go, well, what the hell happened? This one actually makes sense to me. Okay, this this one actually, this is, this is cooler heads prevailing to me. So Morgan Riley appeals the suspension, right? He's going to be missing tonight's game still, just in case anybody's curious about how this works. It's not going to be a scenario where, when you appeal, like in baseball, you play the games and then blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, he's out. He's missing these games. He's missing this game. But I think a little under discussed in the Morgan Riley suspension is that it's the games are going to cost him almost $200,000. $200,000 for a guy who, again, was a Lady Bing nominee and who has zero incidence of even remotely dirty play throughout his career. So they appeal this. And because it's under six games, it goes straight to Gary Bettman. Now, what has Gary Bettman done in the past? Gary Bettman, once famously, well, famously in the suspension world, I guess, because we're all very obsessed with this. And now we, we are going to be experts on this in Toronto. Oh my God, experts. We, you need suspension talk. From now, on, you come to the place that gets them the most. You come to Toronto. The hard-ass Toronto Maple Leafs. The team that just can't stop piling up the suspensions. The appeal goes straight to Gary Bettman because it's under six games. Gary Bettman once famously reduced a suspension for Jason Spezza, who got six games for kneeing a downed opponent like he was a UFC fighter. Like he was or Jan getting ejected for all Sterling. They went, no, no, no kneeing down opponents, Jason. And he reduced it from six to four. And why did he do that? Because of Jason Spetz's track record, because of his history. And here's my guess. My guess here is that Morgan Riley losing a massive chunk of change, $200,000 with a history of no violence, the opposite of Vigo Mortensen, that they're hoping if they just stay quiet and they don't say anything that the league would perceive as dumb and I would perceive as awesome, that Gary Bettman, who, let's be honest, can be a little petty, right? I think we would all agree. I think even Gary Bettman, in a truthful, quiet moment over a glass of scotch, would admit that he can be a little petty. That he doesn't want to hear any more noise out of the the old big smoke. He just would like it if they... Toronto Maple stay quiet and maybe just maybe good old Gary will lop one game off of this thing. Now, again, he doesn't like to go against George. He doesn't like to go against Georgie boy. He, he very rarely does it, but that's my guess. My guess here is that the nice guy politics, Morgan Riley being nice and the Leafs playing nice by not going to their big media and <laughs> frankly whining and kicking up a hornet's nest about this even further. They're hoping that that basically represents good behavior to Gary Bettman and that Gary Bettman takes this thing down from five to four. And you see Morgan Riley one game earlier. Hard to imagine it goes much further than that. Maybe it goes five to three. Who knows? But that's that's the play here, I think. And you could see that with, I saw a Ryan Reeves quote. He went from, hold on, let me see if I can find it. He went from uh, let's bring back violence in hockey, which I went, that's pretty sweet. I'd, I'd wear that shirt to something along the lines of, I hope Morgan Riley has a great day. Oh, this sorry, He had, uh, he, he said, I hope it goes well. Well, the appeal. So that's, that was Ryan Reeves a uh, day later. I think that the message has been communicated internally with the Toronto Maple Leafs that everybody shut up. Let's see how this plays out. And then if Gary goes against us, fire and brimstorm. Brimstone? Brimstone? Brimstone. Stone. Yeah. Anyways, let's take a quick break. Let's come back. Let's talk to Vivek Jacob about last night. And uh, I have some conspiracy theories about LeBron and the Warriors. Next. All right, time for one of my favorites Siakam's return. It's also Vivek Jacob's return. Wrote a great piece that's up on sportsnet.ca right now called How the Pacers Have Fared Since Adding Pascal Siakam. They added from Raptors in the title. Which was important to note for the people here. They're like, where did but where did they get him from? Where did he? Where would where was Siakam before? It's nice that they added. That's why you have editors, right? That's why you have SEO. Yeah, it's nice. Let's get some. Thanks for doing this, buddy. <laughs> hey, so I started my show today saying I think that Siakam is he and DeRozan have a very special place with Raptors fans in that. Both these guys got critiqued to death. And then the second they were gone, well, DeRozan a little different because the second he was gone, it was Kawhi replacing him. But these Mm -hmm. two, to me, represent the guys where the fan base went, "Mm, maybe we didn't really appreciate you enough while you were here. And uh, we're a little bit sorry for that. We're a little sorry for the way that we nitpicked everything about you. And now we would like to try and reclaim you as our own. (laughs) I think that's pretty bang
2: on. I mean, when you look at the history of pascal siakam during his tenure with the raptors i actually feel like there's a lot of similarities between him and chris bosch and i think there were a lot of criticisms of bosch and then when you look back big picture it's like wait a second the best player he ever played with was hito turkalu and when you look at the there way the Raptors those things built. about
0: TJ Ford and Jose color, <laughs> that's just this rude washed up. Like, no, no, that's, yeah, that's fine. Jermaine O'Neal, who we all got so excited <laughs> for. Oh man, the twin towers. They came to my university. I was ready. I was ready for that. But yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> and,
2: and, and then you look at the way they built around Pascal Siakam. It's like, Hey, why couldn't you put more shooting around this guy? Why couldn't we ever see what that would look like? And okay, sure, there were shortcomings. It was clear that he was not, you know, unified number one option. But I think there were ways to build around him um, that were better than what we saw over the course of the last four years before this trade came about, and since he became that number one option.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see what transpires from this trade too. Like what the Raptors do with these picks, it's gonna be pretty critical pretty important I understand the salary implications and wanting to see more from Scotty Barnes but last night was also a reminder and even reading your piece was a reminder that it's not always the worst thing to have a good player around a developing player right like (laughs) having uh like Tyrese Halliburton's pretty young too uh like Mm -hmm. how what's his age difference between him and Scotty Barnes he's just a year older Yeah. Okay. So the, the guys with a player who is better than Scotty right now, or has had a better year than Scotty right now, they decided that they were going to grab Siakam and pay him to put him around their young star to try and build. And I I just thought that was kind of interesting as a reminder yesterday, that there's not one way of doing things. And I was always an advocate for trading Siakam. Like, I don't want to play revisionist history, but when I look at that trade package and I look back on what they got, uh, yeah. I think that there kind of is a case that maybe they should have just kept Siakam. And certainly it feels a little bit like Fred Van Vliet where maybe they should have just done the contract earlier to avoid a lot of this stuff and painted themselves into a, yeah, painted themselves into a corner, but either way, whatever, Um, that the past is the past. I just, I couldn't help kind of feel that way last night. Like, Hmm. Maybe the people that I was arguing with who said, no, just give them the contract extension. Uh, they were right, and I was wrong. Uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, you, you brought up postgame that, hey, it was moral victory night, right? Because that's what they are. They're a rebuilding team, so I think that's fair. that they've responded a few times that they haven't been able to close out games. I tweeted back at you. I'm not really sure that's the case. I thought it was a really good game for Scotty Barnes. But, yeah, do you measure a team differently with responses considering they just, like, they get beat down a lot So there's just a lot of examples of them getting chances to quote unquote bounce back.
2: Well, I I think the point I was trying to make was when you look at the four wins that this team has had since the Siakam trade, three of them have had this extra incentive, right? One is, Oh, Pascal just got traded. I'm going to show, we're going to show out, Uh, you know, there's the Siakam return game. There's the Fred return game. Now Fred didn't play. Um, And so it's like, how does this young team learn to just show up? Um, And and I think that's the biggest challenge that I see with this team in terms of the inconsistency of effort, the uh, inconsistency uh, defensively. uh, That's the frustrating part when you clear house and you give all these young players opportunities. They should be relishing the chance to show what they can do. And so why is it taking, you know, a Siakam return game, a Fred return game, you know, Siakam getting traded to get their juices flowing.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really great point. Um, man. Cause there, there are way too many games where you look at them and go, there's talent here. So why isn't this a little better? Right. Yeah. It's like, okay, that sure. You point. can chalk. <laughs> yeah. You can chalk some things up to like trying to find some chemistry and it's a lot of new guys. And you know, the, the one thing I'm having difficulty with right now is Bruce Brown's part in this. And I, I keep watching him saying, dude, I know you're supposed to I know you got dealt a bit of a rough hand getting traded to the Raptors and that you probably thought it was going to be a way station that you were going to be on your way to New York and competing for another championship this year. But yeah, you're here now. And if you're going to be the team guy, the glue guy, I, I kind of need to see a little bit more of that. I need to see a little fewer of you deciding it's, it's Bruce Brown ISO time. Uh, like <laughs> be a little less of a black hole when the ball comes to you, <laughs> like just a yeah. touch. That would be nice. So there's like little things that you pick up on and say that's fair. But there's also others where I just I can't quite put my finger on it. Other than yeah, some inconsistencies from Scotty Barnes in terms of his ability to kind of kick it up and ratchet it up as uh the number one option. But the number two thing that I'm seeing right now is why why do you think they're not getting more from quickly? Like, is this just a matter of the three not dropping and it's such a crucial part of his game? Like, he's making me feel like I'm missing something every single night right now. And when the offense isn't there and he's getting killed at the point of attack every single time, I, I got to admit, I, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. Yeah. But I do no. think that, it's a bit too premeditated right now. Sorry, can you repeat that? Your phone went like into uh, yeah a total glitch there for a second. What did you say oh. at the top? Oh, I, I, I I'm not
2: concerned at all, but I do think he's playing a bit too premeditated, and I think he's had too many stretches where it's it's almost like he's told himself, okay, I'm going to be uh, a playmaker for this entire quarter or half or whatever it is. And then there's stretches where it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to be in score mode now. And I do think in general, he has been uh, a bit too passive and trying to work on his playmaking a bit too much when this team needs his scoring. Uh, He could use a bit more of that RJ uh, scoring pop. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that's what he's juggling with right now. Uh, There is, I think, an obvious weakness in his game in terms of finishing at the basket you know a lot of people make the emmanuel quickly tyrese maxi comparison i think the biggest difference in those two guys is maxi's ability to get to the basket finish at the basket and i think that's where if quickly uh can improve uh in terms of getting all the way to the basket i think he's uh again a little too premeditated he picks up his dribble a bit too soon um thinking there's nothing there but He's so quick, he, he can afford to, it's not just about his speed, right? And I think when, when he gets that hesitation game down, uh, you mentioned Jose Calderon, that was not a fast guy. But the way he would, he would be able to use, uh, you know, those low feints uh, to get to the basket, that was just amazing to watch. And that's, I think, a bit more of what quickly could learn. Uh, and, and I think as that comes, then you'll see a better player.
0: Yeah. I I do wonder if there's just also a lot of pressure on him to be, Hey, you were in New York. You were the backup guard. You were the energy guy that came in and everybody loved to now you're the face of a trade essentially in terms of at least the future and the ceiling of it. And now you're the lead guard on a team, but you're also splitting duties with a bunch of other guys who can handle the basketball. And how do you fit into that role when Barnes is kind of a point forward and RJ is kind of a point forward. And you know, now I I, I'm fine. I I understand it. He is young, uh, but yeah. I like, I don't know who is like your circles are comparing with Tyrese Maxey. I I'm not, <laughs> I, I never, I'm like, hey, he's small and quick. I, I think that's where the comparison ends for me so far when it comes to those two players. But yeah, I'm trying to let him settle in. I just, I keep trying to look at reasons why the Raptors haven't been a little bit better. Cause I'm on team. I don't know about you, but I'm on team win games and, and kick the pick over this year. You know, like it, to me, it would be mm-hmm. great if the Raptors could convey that pick to San Antonio have it be something like the eighth or ninth pick in the draft, and then be able to move forward in 2025 with your full cash of assets, and and not having to worry about whether or not you're in the lottery, winning games, what you got to do to tank, all that stuff would be great for them. But um, I want to go back to Siakam for one second because I, I do want to talk about the Pacers side of this because I, I think that some people are always curious about the X and whether or not they're they're going to succeed and how they're going to succeed. But you did mention the Fred thing, and is it do you think it's just because he didn't play? that the tributes were so drastically different. Like, like there, I Fred didn't have a McDonald's sponsorship to show up and give everybody free ice cream, but (laughs) the Raptors are giving out tons of jerseys for Siakam. And there, the video tribute was done completely. Like I was at Fred's game and it was just the the picture. And he walked around for a couple of seconds and it was nice. The crowd responded well, but it, it didn't feel like this huge event that was in town. Siakam, They rolled out the red carpet. There were features that were done by, you know, every single publication people were writing pieces up that were completely different than Fred. And I get it. Like one guy was an all NBA talent, but both guys were on the championship team. And I I was a little surprised to see the discrepancy. And I wondered if any part of it had to do with the fact that the Raptors made the decision on one and Fred or the player made the decision on the other.
2: Yeah. I think that final point you make is a good one. And I think, I think, you know, how much of this was damage control after maybe feeling like they did see Ockham dirty a bit. Um, and you look at, it was pointed out that, you know, it, whether it's the Players' Tribune or Speaking After, you know, there's a lot of, hey, I get what they did, but there it, there wasn't so much of, I'm so grateful, you know, to the front office. <laughs> um, and I wonder how much of that, that was damage control um, because I, I don't think he deserved uh, the way things played out over the past six months um but it is what it is and and now i'm I'm glad he got that farewell i think um he got some undeserved hate after the bubble And, and i think for this to sort of wash that away i think um and him to have this memory uh that is going to mean way more uh than any of the negative that has happened
0: yeah, don't anybody tell them that, that a lot of the jerseys in that section were handed out. <laughs> like, don't like let that <laughs> stay, let that stay a secret in the city for forever. Because the visual was incredible. The reality was a little less uh, less great. Anyway, um, you wrote this piece. It's great, right? Sixers uh, or sorry, Pacers six and eight since they got Siakam. Now seven and eight after that win against the Raptors. But you know, it, it was funny because I read your piece and I went, okay, yeah, they're getting a lot more of Siakam. Hmm, like this is pretty interesting. Him fitting with better pieces. And and granted the Pacers were missing a bunch of key guys last night, right? Most specifically miles Turner. And then they lose Neesmith in the, in the third quarter of the game. But Mm -hmm. during the first half and even in moments in the second half, and I know Pascal was in foul trouble. I actually thought it looked like a really awkward fit. Like they, they didn't really know how to get him the ball. They didn't have him involved enough. And And I know it seemed like he was struggling early and maybe some of that was the emotions. Like I think guys at times with games like that, they either don't want to insert themselves in the beginning of the game because they feel like, oh crap, I'm making this all about me and not my teammates. And then when they try to do it, it feels a little forced out of the gate or they're a little cold to do it. But Mm -hmm. yeah, like what did you, what you saw last night, how different is that from what we've seen so far, or what Pacers fans have seen so far with Siakam and the Halliburton marriage?
2: So it hasn't been too different. Uh, And and I think, In general, the Pacers are just getting accustomed to having him in half-court sets. They're so used to running the ball down people's throats and just pushing the pace and trying to shoot within six seconds. And it's all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we have this guy that's pretty good in the half-court and can get his shot off at any time. And to their credit, they showed that in the last four or five minutes of the game when it really mattered and they were able to run some good stuff. Now... One thing that I did point out in the piece is I do think they need to get away from running uh, so many uh, pick and rolls between Halliburton and Siakam where Halliburton is the the ball handler because that ends up getting switched. And uh, then their size on Halliburton is just a bad matchup. I think they need to invert it where you have Siakam as the ball handler, you've got Halliburton as this incredible shooter. Obviously, he's going to have to improve on his screen setting. But how many times did we see Fred VanVleet be the guy setting the screen for Pascal Siakam? Kyle Lowry be the guy setting the screen for Pascal Siakam and how effective that was. Uh, So I think that's something that they've got to add to the offense. Um, And then I think some of it is just time because Halliburton has been playing injured because he knows... If he doesn't make it to the 65 games, he's going to miss out on about $40 million and he doesn't want to do that. And so uh, I think this all-star break is going to do him a world of good.
0: And hopefully they get rolling after that. You know, I wouldn't, I would also not want to miss out on that much money if I was him. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, I, would, I would also really want that money like that. That's, uh, that's a lot. I, I It makes so much sense though so too, because you know, I'm watching it yesterday too, and, and T.J. McConnell was terrible. Like he was just not having a good game, and yeah, it went. You know, I'm like, okay, which so is rare against the Raptors. True, true. But it went okay. He's probably gonna play for the first couple minutes of the quarter, and then when it went beyond three minutes in the fourth quarter, I went, okay, this is actually insane now. And then he started making more mistakes, and I went, okay, they gotta get. I think he played the first five minutes of the third or the fourth, and that was after a dreadful third quarter. I went, oh man, I, I maybe Halliburton is. Yeah, he's a little bit more dinged up than we realize or that he even looks. And if you're that Pacers team, too, that had to be a little scary because, you know, you lose Neith Smith, You do have all these other injuries. You did push a lot of chips in the middle of this year. You're trying to be good, and now you're asking this guy to to play some serious minutes in crunch time. I thought that was an important win for them. But, okay, so you also pointed out that a lot of the losses that they've had have been against some of the best teams in the NBA. Uh, Boston, Denver, New York, Phoenix, Sacramento, and Golden State since they got him. My my thing is okay. That's fair. You lost to good teams, but you did make this trade not to just be all right. And I know Halliburton's young, and so and he's hurt. And again, there's there's mitigating factors here. But watching them last night, even without those guys, their defense is so piss poor that I just like. I don't know how they're ever going to make this thing work where they turn into a title contender still without adding a piece or two. Or, or do you feel like it's going to be that dramatically different? Like, I know they give up a ton of points, but do you think that there can be more internal improvement for this team where they get to be at least passable defensively? Because, yeah, I, I, don't, think, I don't think that the current formula is going to materialize into being a team that we consider amongst the, the very best, like Boston.
2: I'm with you on that I I think they have a long way to go defensively they are not committed enough on that end of the floor I think long term they will need uh, Matherin to take some steps there and then if he can slot into the starting lineup and be that guy who is defending um, elite wings and you can add that to Aaron Neesmith because he's a very good defender And then if if Pascal Siakam ends up being your third best defender or your fourth best defender, because Miles Turner has had a rough season defensively. And so Mm. I think that's another thing that needs to correct. And and so then you've got the right pieces against Tyrese Halliburton. The other thing I will say is Tyrese Halliburton needs to defend better too. Because I remember first watching him in Sacramento and he used to play defense. (laughs) He was a good defender. And so... I don't know how much of that is just having all of this offensive responsibility and maybe Siakam take some of that off his plate and he's able to commit more on the defensive side of the ball. But the way teams have targeted him, uh, teams were targeting uh, Buddy Heald. And I think that's part of why they felt he was expendable uh, and especially the rise of Aaron Nismith. But they've just had too many guys uh, that opponents can go at. And I think they definitely need to cut into that um, to be, in that contender conversation, as opposed to right now, where it's like maybe if they get the right matchup, they can win a first round.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, th- listen, Rick Carlisle's one of the best coaches in the NBA. Uh, I, I know that they were just trying to get the most of the personnel they had and build a team that fits Halliburton. But I do think that this is one of the issues about being the team that says we're just going to run, we're going to score within the first ten seconds, and we are going to try to outmath the other team with three after three after three is Mm -hmm. it almost seems like you're resting on defense and you're you're playing at such a pace where you're just you're basically telling your team don't worry we're going to outscore our problems constantly but then you see a team like the Raptors where they're just like a little bit engaged and you should beat that team even without the guys that you were missing last night like you got Halliburton you got Siakam you're the team that just traded for Siakam they're the tree that team that traded away Siakam you got to beat them kind of convincingly and for you to be down in that entire game. And frankly, I thought that was a bit of a fluky win for the Pacers. Like they got some, some big breaks in crunch time that worked their way. Uh, like, you know, RJ missing two free throws and then getting stopped by uh, a guy who I wasn't overly familiar with before last night. who <laughs> was always <almost> like <laughs> of big threes. And I went, who the hell is this on the Pacers? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Shepherd. I was like, okay, this is the, like this is a fine win. You got away with one, but that that's the way I felt about it. It wasn't like, oh crap, you were so much better than this Raptors team and I went, mm. Yeah, you know, uh, th- th- you shouldn't feel this close. I also kind of wish Miles Turner played, by the way, because it would have been a look for Raptors fans into what could have been <laughs> because there were so many people here that were clamoring for Turner for a very, very long time. And I went, yeah. mm, you know, could have seen could have seen these two guys here in Toronto and said maybe this could have been the, the team you had and what the ceiling was on this thing. But either way. Um, OK, so Scotty was great. Barnes had an awesome game, six turnovers and again, faded a little late. I was fine with RJ getting the the final possession. He had an awesome game too. He's a scorer. He's got experience with it. He had a good matchup. I I I don't have a problem with it. Maybe you do. Um, But what would you like to see more from Scotty Barnes? Fewer turnovers in big spots and like fewer moments of kind of fading away or developing that secondary scoring move that he can consistently get to.
2: Oh, I mean, the, if I had to put one thing at the top of the list, it'd just be the consistency, right? Quarter by quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this was a really strong performance. Uh, you know, it's unfortunately you couldn't make a three in this one. But uh, I think if I were to pinpoint one thing, it would be... Uh, as he's getting more double teams, just being able to recognize them better, um, I, I feel like there's too many times where he dribbles right into them, mm. uh, and and that's where the turnovers stem from. Obviously, there's some turnovers where he's just trying way too risky passes, and, and the risk-to-reward ratio just isn't there. Um, and so, th- those those are the two main things that I would point out is just when he gets the ball in a half-court set, how often he actually dribbles into double teams, um, and and then the two risky passes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like just a couple brutal ones yesterday. Just kind of like, yeah, I, you, you really thought that the whole narrative was going to be, Hey, that's because I, I was kind of arguing with some people about, Hey Barnes. And I, I really, I, I think I was on the far end of the scale of really hating what happened in San Antonio. Like I, and I hated the apology too, like, or the, the accountability afterwards, the miscommunication about what he and Darko said and, Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the shrugging of the shoulders and the basically like there was only a couple of seconds left and we're reading quotes saying some people are posting the quotes like he said it's a bad look for him like he's acknowledging it and then you watch the video and you're like, I don't think that's really what he's saying. <laughs> I think he's saying, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, fine, I guess if you guys say so, uh, but then yeah. for him to come out and respond that way was awesome in this game, right? Like it's just energy and effort the entire game and you go, man, this is it. This is, this is who you can be. Um, and, and, you're and so right I don't want to go. Yeah. Oh, dude, that was one of my favorite things is he was defending him with a lot of ferocity. Like he was just not giving him an inch. There was no uh, there was no grooving of fastballs to the, to mm-hmm. the guy, right? It was no, I'm going to play you hard. He went right at him aggressively on offense a couple of times was picking forcing Pascal to pick up some fouls where he was getting frustrated. I loved last night from Barnes, but there were yeah. two thoughts I had from the nitpicky. St- well, three kind of from if I was going to do the ultra nitpicky thing. One was the turnovers where I'm just like, yeah, you're right. The doubles thing is very smart. Two is, you know, you say the three wasn't dropping. And I'm like, yeah, he's down to 35% after being red hot to start the season. His last 10, he's, I think, around 26, 27%. I'm starting to wonder if what we saw at the beginning of the year, I don't want to say it was a fluke, but yeah, that it, it actually does remind me a little bit of the Siakam year when he came back after the championship and he started to shoot the lights out. And people were like, is this the MVP of the league? And then you get the larger sample and you go, uh, you know, it's not really right. a thing. It's kind of a thing that comes and goes. And so I'm just, I'm not sure if Scotty Barnes above the break threes are, are a thing yet. Are you?
2: No, I, I think we need a greater sample size. I think he's he's taken good steps. When I look at the stroke, I, I do think there are positive steps from last season and what he was as a shooter last season. Um, and I think that... At least in catch-and-shoot scenarios, I feel pretty confident in him. I don't uh, really like the dribble uh, pull-ups as as the overall sample has played out. But I do think he has taken strides in that uh, area. And for this being his third season, to make the leap he has made uh, from three-point range, I I am happy with that. um, And hopefully it continues. The other thing I will say is that that in-between that we saw in his rookie season, that has kind of faded a little bit, remember when he would take like these deep floaters and these hook shots from like almost like seven eight feet out uh, and you're saying, "Wow, he's got great touch! He is shooting thirty nine percent between four and fourteen feet this season uh, oh. and that is something that really needs to pick up because that's a big part of his game, obviously, uh we know he likes to get all the way to the basket on his post ups but sometimes he does get stuck in that in between and that's what he's left with. And, and he was making that at a pretty good rate uh, in his rookie season. And that has kind of fallen off. He was at 45% in his rookie year. It was 41% last year. It's at 39% this year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty stark. I, I got to tell you that's the, and that's the the third thing. Like, cause I only listed the two is just, I, I do want to be able to see some, some mid range, like something, some other move that you can go to, rather than just bully your way to the basket and use your size and strengths to score. Because I, mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that nobody was, oh, I shouldn't say nobody was really mentioning, I didn't see all of the coverage, but the <laughs> thing about the, the Yama game, to me, that was a little scary for Scotty Barnes. And you know, we went, oh, well, he quit on the game and the attitude and the body language and all the discourse became about who he is as a young leader. But to me, it was, yeah, uh, of course, you're only going to play Weminyama twice a year. And there's no millions of Weminyamas out there. There, there are two seven-foot French guys who are great at blocking shots, but there's only one of them that's seven-foot-five with that wingspan. But it was mm-hmm. a reminder that, yeah, there's nothing he had for Weminyama. You know, there was, there, they were like, why didn't they try to pull him away from the basket and the strategy and they're doing all these things? And I went, because you have a player that doesn't have a scoring package to do that. <laughs> like he, he doesn't flat out there was one thing he could do was bully his way to the basket, get two feet in the paint and try to score. And against Victor Womenyama, he went, yeah, this is nothing to me. Like I, I, I'm never going to give you this. And so for Barnes, I was hoping that, or I'm hoping that moving forward, that is the wake up call of like, if you're going to draw those big guys out of the paint, or you're going to be able to score with more consistency, it's going to have to come with something beyond just bully your way to the basket or settle for a three with your feet set. And yeah. Uh, uh, that I think that'll probably end up being the focus of the offseason for him, or at least I hope it is more so than just simply the three-point shooting. Okay, uh, I've got some non-Raptors things for you. Okay. One, uh, are the Warriors good now? Are they just suddenly good? Are they went from a disaster to, you know, to all of a sudden I'm watching last night. They win again. Draymond's back to full Draymond. He's flashing the four rings to the Clippers. Uh, yeah, they're beating just about everybody all of a sudden, and I... I, I don't know. I like, they're just good. That's that we're back. So, All of this so, was I, I don't
2: know if you turned the TV off a little early, but they ended up losing. They um, lost that game. The, the Clippers made an insane comeback late. Um, I turned that game, that game off.
0: I was feeling sick. I was like, wow, warriors are back. This is amazing. I did turn it off.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah and Norman Powell went absolutely insane down the stretch. Uh, yeah, they came back and won that game. Um, and so the Warriors, I think they've been playing really good basketball. I think, obviously, uh, Draymond seems to be playing with a point to prove, as he always does. Um, and if he can stay on the court and, and not get ejected, not get technical fouls, not get suspended, that duo is still elite. And they know how to play with each other better than, than any other duo in the league. Uh, and so I think... That is to be noted. Obviously, we've seen Jonathan cominga really take off. Um, we've got Brandon Pajemski uh, taking big strides. So they've gone young. Um, by the way, Clay Thompson, it is rough. He, mm-hmm. The Warriors had a, a point where they had just cut the lead to two with 36 seconds left, and then Clay Thompson just fouled right off the inbounds, and Steve Kerr was just looking like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. And it is sad to see what has happened with this guy. But, and I think that to me is still going to be the bellwether on whether this team is elite again, if Mm -hmm. he can somehow find something, Uh, because I think they've done. Yeah. So I, I think at best, you know, if you let's face it, if OKC or Minnesota, get them in a first round, I'm going with Golden state. I think the experience factor, they're just going to know too much. And they're going to figure out a way. But going up against the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Suns, I I would not give them a
0: chance. Man, 44 points in the fourth quarter for the Clippers. Uh, That I missed at least half of. Uh, it's at least half of their points in the fourth quarter, but yeah, that I just, my prevailing takeaway from last night was, man, we, we did it again where it was like, we wrote off the warriors and we said that they were dead and buried and I'm watching Steph just do Steph things. And all of a sudden they're actually, I have a tweet that's out there about Kaminga because the Raptors were looking at, uh, potentially trying to get him in a trade. And I was very, Mm -hmm. very, very, uh, anti getting Kaminga because he was at the time, uh, complaining about the head coach, uh, complaining about his minutes, uh, shooting the ball poorly. I I never saw the flashes from Kaminga. Like I saw the flashes, sorry, but I never saw the like this. The the version that he turned into recently. Yeah. And so I'm starting to get scared about that tweet looming out there. Like Old Takes Exposed is going to end up banging a retweet yeah. on that in the <laughs> middle of the NBA Finals when he's the he's the the MVP for the Warriors, the co MVP next to Steph Curry, but. Yeah, I just thought, okay, cool. So the, the balance in the West is restored and the Clippers thing is fraudulent or not fraudulent, but hey, they still got to worry about teams with experience. And no, here we are. Never mind. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I like what I'm seeing from the Warriors. But here's the, the second part or here's the second layer to this. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let me just ask you first. What did you think about the LeBron rumor? Because it's always like who leaked this and why, right? Like why, why did this come out? Why do you think they got this report?
2: Well, I do think that LeBron wants the Lakers to feel some type of pressure. Um,
0: okay. I think so, yeah, You think it's that, LeBron?
2: Yeah. I agree. I, and I think that on some level he's saying, okay, you know, I'm showing my commitment to the public. And so no one can question me if, you know, say in the summer, I come to a point where it's like, hey, I got a better opportunity elsewhere. No, I'm, I'm not going to be the bad guy. I've done everything I could. I brought a title here. Um, You guys haven't built well well enough around me, um, so I'm going to move on. I I think it kind of sets up for that, and if there's an opportunity that comes up, and let's face it, Philly's going to have a lot of money in the summer. And so even though it was a no right then and there, I would not be surprised if that ends up playing out.
0: Okay, so... I'm with you that it was LeBron. A lot of people thought uh, maybe this is the Warriors, right? This is the Warriors way of saying they tried to do something after a quiet deadline, right? Or they they went, I'm like, why would they? I was like, you know, uh, I, I don't think that the Warriors would ever do this. The Lakers, I saw actually Bill Simmons had a theory that the Lakers were doing it to try to mess with the Warriors and mess with their team chemistry. I'm like... You think you're trying to mess with Clay Thompson? He's already messed. Like <laughs> you know, there's no you can't mess with him anymore. He's talking yeah. every single day to the media. They're going to him and it's a sadder clip of Clay Thompson every single day, right? From the locker room. It's Clay and he's oh, he's beaten down, right? And he's he's went from he went from doing the whole I'm not worried about the media whatsoever and what people say. I know who I am and blah 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 to like yeah, I think it's fine coming off the bench and not playing and being a drag on the team. And I'm trying to study film of other players who were aging shooters. It's not good. It's really not good. So I don't think it was a chemistry play. I actually think it was a little bit of what you're saying, which is LeBron doing more of a feeler. He was never going to allow himself to get traded at a deadline, right? Right. That does not happen to all-time great players. And I know people always point to Kevin Durant. It's like, Kevin Durant is an exception to everything when it comes to all-time greats, right? Like nobody's supposed to go join the team of their number one rival. No one's supposed to be this uh in their heads about what just like any random person on social media says or at least open about it. Durant in the 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 Brooklyn thing, who cares? That's a that's a complete outlier. No great players get traded at deadlines. And LeBron is painfully aware of his legacy and would never allow for him midseason to get traded from a Lakers team to go to the warriors and join Steph Curry for a championship. Like never, never, never was going to happen. But I did wonder if this guy does want to stay in Los Angeles, like he does want to stay in, you know, the West coast. He doesn't want to move back to the East. He doesn't want to have uh, another trip down to Miami or mm-hmm. like, the Sixers thing. <sighs> does he really care about getting paid anymore? Like, does he really need to be one of the highest paid players in the NBA? Maybe he does, maybe from the ego standpoint. But if not, I wondered if maybe he was just feeling it out, like, what is the public reaction to had I joined Steph Curry, right? Like, that's why a lot of these rumors happen, is you're floating something out there to see what the reaction is and how bad it would be. And I couldn't help but wonder, If LeBron floated this out there a little bit as a test balloon to see if he joined the Warriors next year, would it be received as poorly as Kevin Durant joining or, you know, if he would get nailed for this or if this was actually a possibility that he could kind of entertain and at least keep it open? Because I think he does care about public perception. I do think he cares about legacy and I do Mm -hmm. think he absolutely wants one more championship ring.
2: Yep. I, I think you're right on all of those counts. And the one thing I will say in terms of d- determining who this came out of, I think there was more than enough information about clutch to know that okay. that doesn't come out without clutch's permission. <laughs> right. And so, uh, and, and so I think LeBron, I'm with you. It's, it's a filler. It's testing the waters, uh, testing what the fan bases think. Um, I will say from a personal standpoint, As a guy who is watching all the superstars he grew up watching age and, you know, sort of uh, sail off into the sunset, I would love to watch Steph and LeBron play together once. Um, But I just don't think that LeBron, knowing the history of like, oh, Katie teamed up with him, won a uh, a ring. LeBron's going to team up with him now and win a ring. Like, I don't think he would want that narrative.
0: I agree. This is why I was a little surprised by the test balloon, because I'm like, you really need to test the public's reaction. If you get another championship ring, like what what is more likely you get finals MVP or Steph does? Right.
2: I just wonder okay, if so, he thinks that it might be different now with him, you know, pretty much 40 years old.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's what I thought as too, opposed but to doing it in the prime. I know I just, I, I can't, if LeBron goes out and gets a championship ring, it's going to be viewed more as a Steph ring than a LeBron ring. Right. And it would be viewed as you went and joined Steph Curry. And then all of a sudden you open the door to, well, LeBron did also go join D Wade, right? He joined Wade. Wade didn't come to him. He went and mm-hmm. joined Steph Curry at the end of the I, I think it would be stupid for him to do it. The only problem is, is if you're LeBron, it's just there's, there's not many places. I, I think he would love to play with those guys in a vacuum. Like, he would love to yeah. go be on the Draymond tri- team. He would love to play with Steph Curry. He would fit perfectly with that team. He wouldn't have to move coasts. He, it would be great. Everything about it is great, except for the narratives. But you look around the league and just, yeah, tell me what the landing spot is for LeBron James that actually makes sense. Because I don't think the Sixers make sense. Why Why would the Sixers make sense? Like, I don't, I, like, I don't really see it. The Knicks? Like... That's the spot he goes to MSG and trust that just feels like Lakers East in terms of, all right, you're good. I don't know if you're great. I, yeah. uh I don't, I don't know what that does for the Knicks. So I just, it's really uncomfortable everywhere from a basketball standpoint to me. And it's weird because I'm saying that about LeBron James, but everywhere, but golden state. Yeah.
2: I mean, I do see a Sixers fit. I, I did think the thing that would take him away from it is, you know, having to come back east. Uh, and obviously he, he's got things so well set up in L.A. and obviously the off-court endeavors. But uh, I do think with the Sixers, if he is the guy handling the ball, then you've got Maxi, then you've got Embiid. Um, I think that would take the team to another level. I think mm. especially in terms of what it takes in the postseason, in terms of getting the best out of joel Embiid, i think that would be incredible and mm. i do think there is a fit i again because of the west coast east coast thing at this point in his career he probably doesn't want to do it um but hey mm. let's see who lands brownie
0: I know it's so, it yeah, Grange had a funny tweet about it the other day. It's like so fresh, wondering where LeBron's going to go. But it's, it is, I actually think that this one is way more fascinating last, like the last two times, because the last two times we knew, right? Like mm. the last two times it was a farce yeah. being like, where's he going to go? We knew. The decision was the only time we didn't. And then it turned out hindsight wise, like it was actually kind of sneaky obvious. But this is one where, yeah, I think teams and LeBron, like, it's it's not a certainty. This is the first time in LeBron's career where a team would probably look at him and say, well, mm, what is this going to do to our team? Like, what are right. we going to have to give up to have you in the room? Versus the every other point where it's been, oh my God, you're even thinking about coming here? We'll do whatever it takes. We'll do whatever it takes. The Knicks basically destroyed their team for <laughs> uh, half a decade because they were trying to clear spots for LeBron and they just wanted to be able to even get in the room with him. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I, count me in to actually giving a crap what happens with LeBron. My only thing in terms of the certainty, uh, I shouldn't say certainty because who knows. I feel like he just he can't go back to Lakers. The Lakers thing is done. The relationship is broken. It's, it's dead. If you're putting it out there that you even had the conversations about a trade and him looking at what that team is this year and how they fared, fared, yeah, I think it's over. Um, anyways, last yeah. one. Uh, it's All-Star Weekend. I can't remember a time where... It felt this muted to me. You're way more of like in the basketball world. Has it been that way? Like, is this just me getting older, where I'm like, oh right, All Star Game? Uh, Is it because the NHL one was in Toronto, so it felt like a bigger deal to me? Like, why? Like, I just learned who's in the dunk contest, and I'm thrilled that Indiana. (laughs) I guess right. I maybe is that is that part of it? Like. But yeah, the dunk contest actually has a real name in it this time. Although there's another dude who I have no idea. I didn't know there were two Toppins. I had zero clue that there was a second Toppin and and that he was going to be in the dunk contest until like two days ago. But I'm thrilled Jalen Brown is doing it and that there's an actual name that's going to be in the dunk contest. Um, I don't really particularly care about the Steph Curry INSQ uh, three-point contest. I'm I'm like, I don't care. Um, I do generally care about the 3 contest in general. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's it. It's in an indie, And so it's quiet.
2: No, I mean, I, I think I'm with you. I think, I think the recent all-star games have just rubbed people the wrong way. And mm. I think there was like a genuine fun natured, competitive natured aspect to it a decade ago, um, maybe two decades ago. And I think that completely dissolving, uh, the last few years, I think, has just run people the wrong way. And, you know, they've kind of said, hey, if, they, if the players are going to treat it like a prick, then maybe we will too. Um, and, and I think there's a bit of that. And so uh, I don't know what they do to solve it. I mean, for me, I'm a big fan of just, hey, just name the all-star teams at the end of the season because I don't think you should be an all-star based off a 40-game sample. And name name the teams at the end of the this season, let this weekend be Team uh, USA versus the world. I think that's the thing that people want to see now. I think that's more appealing. I think that brings its own incentive beyond money. And you would have guys like Jokic and Embiid and whoever really trying to prove a point. And I think that's the move that I make if you make me commissioner for a day.
0: I like that idea a lot. I like that idea a lot. By the way, commissioner for a day, I don't know if you've seen the clip of Vince Staples being commissioner for a day. It's really good.
2: No, I have not.
0: I yeah, gotta you check go, that out. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta go on. It's just on, it's floating around on Twitter. Tim with Paul George, actually on uh Paul George's podcast, but Vince Staples is funny as hell. Like I, I I kind of hate Vince Staples because he's so talented that it makes me upset. <laughs> like He's <laughs> he's so good, uh, as a musician. And then he's just, he's almost as funny as he is talented with music. I, that, that's not right. That's not right. It's not right. Something like if I found out that he was actually a good basketball player, I, I don't know. I think I would genuinely not be a fan. <laughs> Like if I found out that he he hurt his knee or something and that kept him out of the NBA, I'd be like, yeah, I, I actually never mind all my thoughts on Vin Staples the last 5 years. I'm actually against him. Uh Vivek Jacob, thanks as always for the time, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, JD. See you, buddy. Uh good stuff again. Go read Vivek's piece up on sports.ca. And if you're a cricket fan, he's going to be doing all of the the coverage for cricket, which again, the the sport that does need to take off in this country more so than any other. By the way, speaking of things taking off, just quickly before the break. PWHL playing at Scotiabank on Friday and you can't get a ticket. Like I'm I'm begging connections trying to get into the building. Truly. It's it, go go on any site, Stub Ticketmaster. I don't know if I'm supposed to be able to say this game time app. Whatever. Go find me a, a reasonable ticket. You can't do it. You can't do it. I think that they might even have to, like they can't, they obviously won't be able to do this. There's other reasons logistically why they can't, but PWHL in the city straight up might have outgrown Mattamy, which is insane. Insane. You would think that, okay, the PWHL moving to Scotiabank arena, Ooh, it's going to be a bit of a, a Friday night, tough sell. Nope. Can't get a seat. Can't get a seat. Natalie Spooner. Toronto's Natalie Spooner. Uh, Another hat trick yesterday. Now, 10 goals in 10 games. Goal a game. 10. She had more goals last night than most players in the league. Uh, But yeah, 10 goals. Four more than the next closest, which is Marie-Philippe Poulain. And they play Montreal on Friday. Anyway, I I can't wait for that game. There's real buzz. That's really cool to see. I'm thrilled that that league is taking off the way that it is. And yeah, that God... I wish it was a little less popular so I could go to the game. Uh, But other than that, pretty sweet, pretty sweet for the PWHL. Anyways, let's take a quick break. Let's come over to the other side. Dana White's done with podcasts and we'll wrap up for the week. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Got this incredible Dana White audio that I want to play in a second. Although I don't know if it's a work or not. Cause now you gotta question everything, right? This is just the, the world we live in now. You see something in the internet, you gotta go, is that real? Well, you should have probably done that always, but now especially. <laughs> but I just wanna say before I throw to it, the last thing on the PWHL thing is as I desperately try to grovel for tickets, um, probably wasn't the best idea for the PWHL to not have Natalie Spooner involved in the NHL All-Star Game festivities considering she might be the best player on the planet right now and yeah again has 10 goals in 10 games just a thought probably next time involve your best players is what I would it it just that's just a a me thing is I would say put the best players on the ice have most people interested especially when that person happens to be the arguably best player in your league and has the most goals and it's just absolutely dominating this season anyway uh okay, Dana White is supposed to go on Howie Mandel's podcast, <laughs> and this is how it goes. Not only an amazing businessman, you are oh, an inspiration. You are a philosopher. Oh, the way philosopher. you do business, the way you uh, conduct your business and your friendships and oh, media is—I'm—I'm uh, I'm jealous. And but Dana, I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you. For all the kind words, I appreciate it. I, I am so f***ing tired of doing podcasts. It's I, I'm literally done with them. I'm not doing any more podcasts. And that's the sound of Dana White walking off the set after he delivers that. Anyways, I, I think this is amazing. Uh, it goes to show you that, hey, the the only way to do this is to actually be genuine. And the Mendel thing was just so over the top and ridiculous. that Yeah, it's awful. I, again, I don't know if it's to work. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But... Good. Down with everyone trying to have a podcast. All right. This is for losers like me. All right. Leave, let, leave us alone. Let us have Dana White. Howie Mandel, you've got America's Got Talent. You don't need a podcast. Nobody cares what you have to say when you're gushing towards Dana White insincerely like that. I, I sounded like he didn't even know who Dana White was. Anyway, I love it. I'm off tomorrow. I'm back on Monday on Family Day. I'll see you then.